Welcome to Building and Protecting Your Business Worth podcast. This podcast is about sharing strategies and ideas to help business owners build, protect, and transition their businesses for the future while creating more balance in their life. Your host is Thomas J. Perrone, CLU, CIC, and president of the New England Consulting Group of Guilford Incorporated, consulting business owners for over 50 years. Welcome to Building and Protecting Your Business Worth. Hi, I'm Tom Perrone, and I'm your host. And this podcast is all about learning strategies to build your business, to create greater profit, but to create also an abundance of leisure time so you can enjoy what you're building. Today, we have a wonderful guest, and I would like to introduce to you Paul Hood and Ed Pertessi. Welcome to Building and Protecting Your Business Worth. Guys, thanks for jumping on today. Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. Paul, look forward to working with you on this one. This is going to be fun. And I have yeah, to Good morning, y'all. Uh, glad, glad, glad to see both of you. The, uh, the audience should know that, uh, full disclosure, that uh, I've had these two guys on before at different times, but I've... This is the first time I've gotten to match them up. But let me introduce a, a brief introduction. Um, first of all, uh, Paul Hood uh, knows how I feel about him as a, being a technical writer. He's probably the best that I've ever read. And he's got over, I think it's nine books, Paul, and a bunch of articles. And I'm going to put your web uh, your website on the summary so people can get up there and read a ton of articles um full disclosure i i i was uh, endorsed his book um his recent book which was yours mine and ours which is a fabulous planning book and i probably have read this buy and sell agreement book many many times um and so paul thank you for all the contributions that you help people might like me maybe look a little bit smart um Ed Pertessi, I've had the honor, because he's local, of working with Ed. And Ed not only is a bright guy, although I would tell him otherwise, and he'll chuckle over that, but he's probably <laughs> the best communicator. And that's pretty tough coming out from a CPA. But he can communicate, and oh. he asks the greatest questions. And he, I've seen him turn clients around. Uh, with information that they would never divulge. And he's just a great interviewer and helps them out. So, uh, Ed, thanks you so much for what you contribute to me. I appreciate it. You wrote that buy and sell agreement book, which are two of them. One's for the financial guy like me. The other one, the the one that you, you recently wrote, Buy sell agreements, last will and testament was for business owners, which was fabulous because I've given them out to uh, our clients and they understand it. But tell me, there's a story behind why you've written these books. Can you share with that with us? Yeah, family family history. <laughs> a bad buy sell agreement cost my maternal grandfather our family business, which was in the second generation. Didn't just cost him cost my uncle, my mother's only sibling, who was working for him. Um, and uh, Bobby got fired and Papa, and I remember when I was eight, got what, the, what, what they said at the adult table at lunch that day, which was rather animated. The kids sat at a table at my grandparents' house by themselves. 
And then my the adult sat at the adult table. All, and of course, I was eight, but you know, I was kind of ahead for my for my age. I mean, I could tell you that all the presidents of the United States when I was six, and I spelled Oldsmobile to my mother's horror when I was two. Um, but um, anyway, I remember him talking about Papa was getting redeemed, and Uncle Bobby got fired, and uh, so. You know, I go to law school. And unfortunately, Papa died um, when I was a junior in law school, my second year in law school. But when I was a, a very early in my legal career, I was at the Louisiana Secretary, Secretary of State's office, and um, uh, I was I was filing documents. I was waiting on some documents and whatnot, and so I decided I wanted to pull the charter for our family company, which had been incorporated in the early 20s. And my grandfather was a deferential guy, and he had a, they always viewed themselves as equal partners. But the lawyer said, well, one of you should be 51, the others would be 49. Uh, so my grandfather deferred and took the 49. And you know what happens when you get the 49. <laughs> It's usually not good news. And of course, uh, Papa's partner brought in his son. And of course, my grandfather brought in his son. And, um, you know, that both were namesakes and neither of the kids got along. And eventually, you know, um, the other guy's son prevailed on the other guy. So we got to end this. And, um, but, you know, karma, what I was going to tell you was when I saw the buy-sell agreement, it was, in, it was actually in the articles, and I wasn't expecting to see that. Because normally, those that, that language isn't in a public document. But this one was. And it was essentially a call, at, a perpetual call at book value. <laughs> so for like almost 45 years. And, and I don't think anybody even looked at it until they were trying to figure out a way out. And, oh, here it is. But, of course, as I said, karma, you know, we don't control when karma evens the score. But in the end, uh, the son drove the company into bankruptcy. And uh, so we were the only family that ended up with any wealth out of the business. Um, but, you know. It is what it is. So, yeah. um, and of course, from my standpoint, you know, it was buy sell agreements were were ubiquitous and poorly done. <laughs> I couldn't believe how bad they were, and they still are. <laughs> That's the sad thing about it. And you know that is a sad thing because Ed and I talk about that all the time about. You know, they have buy and sell agreements. They haven't looked at them. Some are not signed. Some are not funded. The whole deal. Um, I know, Paul, the other question I have for you was uh, the um, Yours, Mind, and Ours is a wonderful estate planning book for blended families. Can you share with us uh, why you decided to write? I know you've been writing about blended families for 25 years. You've been ahead of the curve, but you finally, instead of writing just a a paper on it, you went to a book, and it's a fine book. Uh, tell us a little bit what, what made you to get the book out. Well, 
the reason why I started studying them, and I guess now that 25 years is probably turned into 30, <laughs> um, they were always my most challenging clients because a lot of the traditional single relationship estate planning techniques that too many estate planners default to are absolutely dangerous in the hands of a blended family. I mean, think about it. Joint tenancy. You know, very common. Oh, we'll put the house in joint tenants. <laughs> well, what is that going to do to the descendants of the first spouse to die? They're disinherited. <laughs> the survivor, and, 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 and if anybody thinks, oh, well, the survivor will do the right thing and leave it to their um, to their stepkids, no. That never you, you know, I, I uh, full disclosure, I, I did a, a testimony of how good this book was because I read it and I really believe in the topic because I can't tell you how many documents over the years I've read where they've been uh, vanilla and, you know, all the old techniques with a, a, a married couple don't, in many cases, if it's if it's if it's a a default, it doesn't work with a blended family because of being disinherited. And you have stepkids that are probably either good or really rotten. You know, you had no control of them. You know, uh, it's almost a sin to give them anything, but that happens, and we see it a lot. But it's it's a book that I want the audience to to get at Amazon because I think. Uh, a lot of people should be reading about this before they even call an attorney to talk about it. Well, it's the most common form of family in the United States now, Tom, and has been since the 2010 census. It was repeated in the 2020 census. Yeah, yeah, it's the way it is. I mean, we have a blend. So, so essentially, essentially, we have replaced Ozzy and Harriet and leave it to Beaver with the Brady Bunch. And that's where we are. That's, that's the way to put it. Um, and, you know, yes. you and I have been on uh, many situations where we've talked about estate planning and valuation. And uh, it, it doesn't surprise me how many people I speak to that are in business that never got a valuation or appraisal of their company, but they're using rule of thumbs or uh, their industry says that you could sell for five times. Can you tell us what the biggest mistakes have been and seen in the valuation provisions of a buy and sell agreement? Sure. You know, Tom, all of our privately held business owners, they know the value of their business. And, you know, they're the first ones that can step up and give us an opinion as to what the value is. Uh, whether right or wrong is a separate issue. But and, and Paul Paul wrote about this in one of his pieces as well, which I, I, I found absolutely comical because they don't really know what their value is. But let's let's talk about a few of the um, issues that I see. And, and they parallel some of Paul's, but I add my own little flair, if you will. The first of which is defining value. Value to whom? And I and I say I say this very importantly because we call it in our trade standard of value. Well, what that really means is what's the definition of value? More times than not, it's fair market value, which is more recognized and easily more easily defined because it's in the Internal Revenue Code under Revenue Revenue Ruling 5960. The other, the second is level of value. Now, what the heck does that mean? Level of value is very specific to who 
whom is being purchased or, or who, the, who, the, who the seller is going to be or the first one to die or the first one to sell, as the case may be. And level of value refers effectively to discounts. Is there discounts for lack of control? As an example, a minority shareholder would have lack of control. Should that be considered? What level of value? Is it, is it control value or something less than that? And also marketability. What is there a possibility or a consideration of whether or not a discount for lack of marketability should be should be given as well or should be considered? And we know one thing for, about privately held companies. They're not easily marketable. <clears throat> the other thing that I see is qualifications of the appraiser. And many times we see independent third party appraiser. Wonderful. Now, are there any designations attached to that person? Do you want to attach them? We have at least four different types of qualified appraisers out there. And there's also a definition in the Internal Revenue Code and a, a qualified appraiser along with the qualified appra appraisal. So it's important to understand what the description of the appraiser is. One of the other things that I find is the mechanism under which the report or evaluation is prepared. Now, the, we can range from anything called a calculation of value all the way up to an opinion of value. That's really important because I, I've, in fact, in the case study that we'll hopefully go through today, we'll, we'll find an indication that it says written report. What does that mean? Is it a calculation, which is very abbreviated, or is it an opinion, which is extremely detailed? That, I think, is an important consideration. Or it could be an oral report, too. But I don't, I don't find that very often in any buy-sell agreement, Paul. I don't know if you have either. No, I never have, actually. Uh, well, only by default. And they actually think it works. Really, yeah. And the last is what I'll call formula, formula valuations or what, what um, we referred to, what Paul referred to a little bit earlier, book value. I sort of lump them two together. And there's a good, it, I have an abbreviation for it. Rules of thumb, rot. Don't use rot to value your business. Those are some of my quickies. Well, you know, I have... Well, I want, I, Paul, I want to go back to, uh, Paul, you, go ahead, talk, say well, what you were going to say, Paul. I wanted, I wanted to say uh, two, two things. First, Ed's right that very few clients, you know, have any real idea what their business is worth. Okay. They don't. They think they do, but they don't. Um, the, um, Probably the biggest valuation mistake, besides not laying out all of the elements of value that Ed laid out, standard of value, level of value, you know, who the who what are the minimum qualifications for the appraisal? But probably the biggest one, the biggest mistake I see is what I call the three appraiser method. You value. Our, we'll, Argyle value, and then those two will appoint a third and nil value until they, until they, the client finds out how much that costs. And you're like, uh, well, you know, there, there are easier ways to do that and, and a lot less expensive ways to do it, too. But the other thing I wanted to say was clients who are not savvy, sophisticated business People. You know, they may be in, in their business, but not in the business of selling and buying businesses. Exactly. An appraiser, a good appraiser, a good business appraiser. And, and I guess the same is true for all for all valuation 
But an appra- a good appraiser is two things. One, they're a fantastic question asker. And then they are great storytellers. Because I, I developed Hood's rules of business valuation. And the third one is, well, the first two are actual value is irrelevant. Hmm. Actual value is unknown. Perceived defensible value is everything. Mm-hmm. And that's it. So when if if you put a number on a tax return and the IRS, you put X and the IRS comes back and says, no, we think it's worth <clears> two X. You're going to win or lose based on your valuation professional. You know, Paul, you bring up a really good point about qualified a qualified appraiser. And I'm going to use that term very carefully. It's about the experience that the appraiser has. I've seen many appraisers who operate in a vacuum, i.e. They're, they're essentially trained in accounting more typically than not, or finance as the case may be, but don't have real world business experience of having either run a business or been participating in a business. And you need that business acumen or experience to really understand the questions to ask when you're valuing a business. That's yeah. true. And I, I have, a, I, I want to segue into two things. One for you, Paul, and then, Ed, I want to talk about your case. And let me come yeah. back to uh, what Paul said about uh, asking the right questions and the story. And I've never met anybody better that does that better than Ed. I, I First time I saw him interviewing one of our clients, I said, boy, he is really, really talented because he did ask the right questions and the client responded honestly uh, and, you know, laid it all out for him. So you're absolutely right, Paul, when you say a very good appraiser has at least those two elements working for him. Now, Paul, you have on your website one of the greatest tools that anybody's done for buy and sell. You have the buy and sell option grill, which I, I, I grid rather that I know you, you did um, for people to use attorneys, especially tell us a little bit about that. And then Paul, I want, I mean, Ed, I want to go back to your case study after Paul explains that grid, because I want people to go to the website to look at that. Excellent. Well, the buy sell options grid I developed to help me help my clients figure out what to do. I'm a huge one page guy. And I know the lawyers who used to represent me when I was a trustee of a big trust, they hated me most of the time. But one of them accused me of, of having perfected my client skills, <laughs> which I thought was funny, but, the tool is on one page and it's two axes and the vertical axis are the various triggering events in agreements. And most agreements don't have more than three or four. In fact, some agreements don't have any. It's just a right of first refusal, which is essentially worthless. Okay. Unless your person has the the economic resources to buy out their partner or partners, a buy-sell agreement with a right of first refusal is worthless. I mean, it it essentially is worthless. But some of the, you know, common ones, you know, the D, you know, death, disability, divorce. Um, But I have maybe 15 or 20 
going down there because there are a number of different ones that you run into periodically. The horizontal axis are the responses to those triggering events. And what I learned, and th this tool has been around for 30 years, okay? And I've tweaked it over the years, but not much, okay? And the reason why is because clients get it. You go through and there's a box like death. Uh, is it a mandatory purchase and sale? They check that box. They literally can order the triggering events and responses on the buy-sell grid. And the beauty of it is when you make them view it in three to five years, do you think they pull that agreement out? Now, remember, they signed their buy-sell agreement. They stuck it in the front drawer. It made its way to the back over the years. And it's back there with some, you know, uh, ketchup, you know, uh, ketchup packets and napkins and a plastic fork and, you know, God knows what else. <laughs> but let me tell you something. You know they haven't even looked at it. But you pull that out. And sometimes I even make it an exhibit. To the buy, or well, I did when I was still in practice. Um, an exhibit to the buy sell agreement, and guess what? When you pull out that, they they may not know that all the details of their agreement, but they damn sure know the trigger events and what's supposed to happen. And let me tell you something: when you get a when you get a situation where the client has that sort of, and I'm not talking about okay, I'm talking about immediate. Recall a hundred percent recall that that's a tool worth using. So, and that's why you know, I, I and I give it to people for free, you know, I just because and the reason why is because you know, I still get hired by lawyers to review, you know, buy sell agreements, and the drafting is still as dreadful as it was when I, you know. Yeah. got out yeah. of practice in 05. You know, 18 years ago, the drafting ain't no better. Well, it's I, awful. I, I have to tell you, it's a wonderful tool. And I uh, people should go to your website, which will be in the show notes, and take a look at the material that you have. You have so much good stuff up there. Um, as a matter of fact, I uh, I pulled up today something I've used in the past to actually send and use with a client of mine, which I think you call the, it's a contact sport, the family business succession planning which is fabulous. Oh, yeah, the white paper I wrote on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah just <clears throat> fabulous. Well, typical of Paul Hood, he just writes really well. And if you're a practitioner, you should take advantage of what Paul's got to offer. Now, Ed, you sent me a case yes, study, and I do want to talk about that because it's a common thing. And I want you and and, and uh, Paul to discuss this with. And the value of a member's interest being purchased shall be the fair market value of the company determined as below multiplied by the member's percentage interest. Ed, tell us about this case. Yeah, this is an actual case that I worked on back in March of this year and it involved an, a, a physician that was retiring from a physician practice in New York City. And they had signed this particular agreement. It's an LLC operating agreement. And in particular, what was interesting, it, it, for the valuation, it re required what I'll call four rounds. 
The first round is the appraisal that the company that the company at the company's expense will retain an independent and qualified third party appraiser. Wow, great. So far so good, maybe. Well, let's identify what is a qualified third third we understand what the third party a third party is, hopefully independent. Qualified, there's no definition as to what is qualified. What's really important here is that the written report is delivered within 20 days from the appraiser's engagement is effective. Now that's a really short time frame to put it mildly. Um, you can get that long just to create, get the information necessary to start the valuation process, let alone provide in quotes, a report, a written report, whatever that means too. But even more importantly, the most important point that really came out and you'll see it as it fleshes out is the level of value. And what does that mean? What it really means is, is there any discount attached for lack of control because it's, this was a minority shareholder who only owned 10%? And is there a lack of marketability? It's unknown in this agreement. So do you think there's a potential for problem here? Paul? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, for, for value, for, for estate and gift tax value, they want below. They want those discounts. But yeah. When it comes to family getting cash, they don't want no discounts. Precisely. And, okay. and of course, this was not articulated. So we go to round two. Tom, you want me to continue with this? Because I want to go through each of the yes, four I rounds. Do. Really, I, yes, I do. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. It's really, it's really fun. So round two, if the member disagrees with, with the, with the uh, written report, he now has the option of, uh, of getting a second appraiser done. And from the moment that they, he hires, engages a that second independent qualified appraiser and which is really funny because that appraiser has has to have an office in new york city which i found interesting but in any event um the appraiser shall deliver his report or her report within 20 days as well of course who is qualified and who is the judge so in any event what's really important here is it it, it, it devolves i hate to say that it is in that in that in that tone it devolves to the test and as Paul probably articulated and you've seen in some of his um, his works, you end up with, if there's a difference of more than 20%, you, you, you split the baby. Well, in this case, when I when I got retained, I actually didn't get retained, but I started in, on the consulting, I said, you know, you don't want to retain me at this point in time until such time as we get the report from the other side. We got the report from the other side. What do you think it had in it? Now, this is the buyer of the, the buyer, which is the company. It's going to have not only a, list, a discount for lack of control, but a discount for a lack of marketability. Wow. So it really depressed value, to put it mildly. So step four, and, and Paul, you'll love this, a third appraiser is, 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 is adjudged. Now, what's really interesting about this particular provision is typically you get a third party, a third appraiser who perform an appraisal as well. Not so in this case. What we're having here, this third appraiser is going to be the arbiter, if you will, is, is report one good or or report two good, and know that neither in between shall shall shall, shall anything meet. So we end up with effectively a binding arbitration on the part of the third third party. So what happened? We ended up having a hiring council. We ended up with a valuation fight when we ended up with five different potential values of the company, needless to say, with or without discounts. And one of the premises in the whole valuation was a projection prepared by management, which appropriately enough, even though the company was growing at a 20% rate over the last five years, showed flat growth over the next five years. Paul? 
Well, you know, <laughs> this is what you're describing is too sadly clogging the courtrooms yes. throughout the fruited plain. It's, it's, and, and when you said 20 days, I about, I mean, I, I almost gasped because I've never seen it as low as 20, but it's not right. unusual to see 30. And what I tell people is most lawyers get the triggering events right where they make their mistake. And, and I go through this in something I call the drill, the, the fire drill. Yep. Okay. What most what most people don't end up getting is they the um this the procedure like the 30 days. Good luck. I mean, I've been involved yep. probably close to a thousand valuations in my career. Okay. And if your client answers fully answers the appraiser's information document requests in 30 days, move to the front of the class. Because invariably, they don't even do that. So what happens is your procedure goes off kilter. You're late. Then the things, and then that pushes back everything else, and you don't know what the rules are. <laughs> so it's really, it's a sad, it's a sad thing. Um yeah. It, it really but like is. I said, it, 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 what it ends up doing is, you know, when I when I send people through, you know, you know people sit next to me on an airplane. If I don't have my earbuds on, what do you do? Well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I ask them, so are you in business? Yeah. I said, you have partners? Yeah. Said, okay. I said, do y'all have an agreement that says what happens if one of you dies or goes bankrupt? Oh, yeah, we got one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, uh, I said do you know what it says? Well, the lawyer said it was good. I'm like, okay. I said, well, I want you to indulge me. And when we were kids, we played make believe. So I want you to put up with me for a minute and play a game called the fire drill. I want you to, when you get home, you pull your buy sell agreement out, which will move you to the front of the class, too, by the way. And then you imagine, assume that a triggering event has just happened. It might be your death, might be your partner's death, might be your partner's divorce. And then I want you to walk through your agreement from soup to nuts. Is it a triggering event? Does it require a transfer? If so, at what value or price? How is the price to be paid? Can it be paid with a note? What is the period over which the note will be amortized? Okay. You got all that. Well, in the end, to, to sort of cut to the chase, it goes bad. And I said, one of two things will have just happened. Someone will have just been hypothetically screwed or exactly, it's going to litigation because it's, it's, it's ambiguous. Okay. I said, the good news here is that the, um, uh, this is just make believe. The bad news is now you know. Right. So, and I, I strongly, it's my fervent prayer, and I always use that term of that you 
look at this and and make sure that yours is right. I said, because I'm going to tell you this, and this is the bottom line. In my opinion, 90%, nine out of 10 buy-sell agreements have a significant Lock. defect in them. Yes. Yeah, that, I, agree. I mean, And like I said, I, you know, I've probably seen more than anybody else. Absolutely. You know, I see a bunch of them. I mean, I, they, they, they come to me. And I look at this, I'm like, this is terrible. <laughs> Who did this? And, and I could tell you, being in the field like I am and being referred into companies, I'm amazed <laughs> that people spend so much time building this wealth machine and do very little to protect it and are so cavalier, like God's going to, after they die, God's going to come in and clean all the mess that they avoided mm. to plan for. Gentlemen, we are running out of time, and I got a hard break, but uh, we'll do this again. There's so many other areas to talk about, but I wanted to thank you. Um, first of all, two great websites. Go to Paul's website, bunch of stuff. And, and Ed, I really like your website. You got a lot of good stuff about what you're doing and all the services you're providing. Um, so, guys, I want to, um, if you guys could stay on after we, we cut to the chase so I can say goodbye, I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, work with us today. Excellent. My pleasure, Tom. Always a pleasure to be with both of you. Well, I want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening. It was a good show today. And uh, if you would help us out by subscribing, click a like. Uh, if you have any ideas or thoughts that you would like to share with us, please email me at tperone, that's P-E-R-R-O-N-E, at N-E-C-G-G-I-N-C dot com. And if you are a business owner or you know business owners that would like to participate on our show, certainly let me know. We certainly welcome everyone who is a business owner to help people out there that are running businesses with great ideas and strategies to make them successful. So again, thanks for tuning in. I certainly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. Whenever you're ready to grow and protect your business while creating more balance in your life, here are three steps you can take. One, subscribe to this podcast. To request a free copy of Tom's newly published book, Unlocking Your Business DNA, email Tom at tperone at necgginc.com. And on the subject line, type DNA. Include your mailing address. And thirdly, take the one-minute scorecard and report to see how efficient you are in your business planning. Email tperone at necgginc.com and request scorecard. For additional information, click the show notes.